Hello, everybody. I'm Dwayne Mancini, and welcome to another episode of the Project MedTech Podcast. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. For more information on Project MedTech, our events we host, our consulting and advisory services, and to sign up for our monthly newsletter, visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, and follow us on LinkedIn. If you're enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcasts by searching MedTech Money on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. MedTech Money is an interview style podcast focused on demystifying raising and investing capital for MedTech companies. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Rook Quality System. Why Rook? Because getting a medical device to market is complex, not unlike a game of chess. There are as many moving parts as there are pieces on a chessboard. You need the perfect strategy and tactics, and that begins with your very first move. That's why at Rook, their mantra is make every move count. They may not be experts in the Queen's Gambit, but they are experts in quality and regulatory strategy for both emerging and established medical device companies. If you need to comply with regulations in domestic and international markets, and time is of the essence, don't make a move without Rook. Check them out at rookqs.com. In this episode, our guest, Piyush Shervastava, and I discuss the company he founded with his two other middle school friends, dropping out of college together, the rise of magnetic cardiography, how they raised money from Mark Cuban, the support from Cincy Tech, a problem-centric approach, and so much more. So without further ado, my discussion with Piyush Shervastava. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Dwayne. Appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. So I always get a little charged up for uh, these episodes. Uh, so you are located in Ohio. Your company's here. Um, we don't do a video aspect, but I'm wearing a Cleveland Cavaliers shirt. I got an Ohio hat on. We're representing the whole thing today. Um, but but for for those listening in, let's start with the quick background on yourself leading up to the current company that you helped find and, and are running? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I uh, grew up in Mason, Ohio. Um, and that's actually, you know, punchline is that's where the business is located. We've been growing here for the past several years. So suburb of, of Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, I met my co-founders in middle school. So we grew up together here in Mason. And uh, Ultimately, we went our separate ways in college. Uh, I went to Ohio State. Manny, my other co-founder, went to Ohio State. Vineeth went to Case Western. But, you know, born and raised, really, uh, for the most part in Ohio, my, my founding team. Um, but uh, we actually came up with the idea of Geneticist as a, as a dorm room startup. So we first started incubating the technology while we were students. Um, and a few years in, after having done... A lot of work trying to understand what problem do we really want to solve? What pain points do we know emergency room physicians, cardiologists, electrophysiologists are facing with? Um, when we finally got a hand on what that problem was and the fact that we had complementary skill sets that we knew we could put together to solve that problem, that was kind of what gave us the the uh, motivation, so to speak, to drop out of school. Mm -hmm. So we actually left Ohio State uh, and Case Western 
to start and uh, work on Genesis full time in 2016. Wow. Okay. And so, uh, for frame of reference, I mean, is this your freshman year, your sophomore year of college, or or, or what is this? So we started uh, at school in 2013, 2014. I started in 2013. Okay. Beneath the Manny in 2014. We started toying with the concept in late 2013. So officially September of 2013. Um, but for the first couple of years, we were we were in ideation mode, just you know, idea on a napkin, you know, drafting concepts out, you know, just gauging the market's feedback, so to speak. Because um, the beauty of being young is, you know, we are naive and we're not we're not mistaken in believing that we don't know the answer. So we went into this really just trying to learn more than anything else. Um, I don't think we wanted to get into the conveyor belt, you know get the highest GPA, you know, graduate top of your class, go to med school, all of which is great. We just, I think beneath many and I knew that's not what we wanted to do. Um, and so this was, this was something that excited us. We knew it was cutting edge. It was new and, you know, we wanted to build something. Yeah. Yeah. It's super cool. So, uh, how do you pronounce the company one more time? Geneticist. Geneticist. Um, okay. And so, um, you are the uh, uh, CEO. You mentioned Manny and Vineeth. What are, are their roles like CTO and? Yeah, Manny's our CTO and Vineeth is uh, our COO. Okay, very cool. Um, so I, I, I do want to go back to that um, because um, uh, you, you mentioned something there with team and complementary skill sets and, and how you guys decided that. So I do want to dive into that a little bit. But but before we do, uh, uh, tell us what you're what you're working on, what the company does, the stage, you know, that kind of thing. Give us some history there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we're we're a medical imaging company. Um, you know, as I mentioned, we started in 2013, but we really started building our product in 2016. Uh, the product is actually an end to end medical imaging technology. Um, uh, called CardioFlux. Uh, it's based on the principles of uh, an age-old science called magnetocardiography, MCG for short. Um, that concept had been around since the late 60s. Um, and back in the late 60s, it was really a science fiction turned science reality. It was the idea that the heart, which generates you know, an electrical impulse, electrical current, um, naturally, would also generate a magnetic field. And so in the late 60s, the idea was, can we measure that field? And from the late 60s to the early 2010s, there was a robust amount of work that was done to show that those magnetic fields are uniquely sensitive to cardiovascular disease. So for example, uh, ischemic heart disease, you know, blocked coronary arteries, coronary microvascular disease. Um, but the challenge in the late 60s was that you didn't have next-gen sensing like we do now. You don't have next-gen compute like we do now. Uh, there was no cloud. And so the technology was a bit early for its time. Uh, even though it was inspired, it was way too restrictive in terms of what would need to happen in order to make it commercially viable or clinically useful. Yeah. But now fast forward to the 2010s, uh, Vineeth, Manny, myself, um, uh, looked at this problem with, with fresh eyes. And we realized that, you know, technology has come a long way and, uh, there's a lot more we can do now um, with what was a previously an exciting concept, but now could be an exciting reality for patients and physicians alike. Very cool. Um, and so, 
uh, start the company 2013, right? Um, and so tell take me through, take me through, I guess a, a good, a good, uh, timeline for everybody is like, take me through <clears throat> the different milestones specifically. When did you first raise capital? When did you get, is this something that needed regulatory approval? Um, take me through those major milestones of when you did certain things, when you commercialized, when you got your first customer, you know, that whatever you could share there. Yeah. So, and I can like bucket it into like 2013 to 2016. That was our idea on a napkin kind of phase. Okay. All the money okay. we brought in was, was uh, like business plan competition type money, um, yeah. capital, that sort of thing. Uh, but that kind of all converged to in 2015, we, uh, we moved to Buffalo, New York for a year. Um, and we actually took a, a leave of absence from school at the time because we had won a business idea competition at 43 North and had the opportunity to start spending all of our time talking to the users in the field, you know, emergency room physicians, cardiologists, electrophysiologists uh, about their pain points um, and the concept that we were working with magnetocardiography, what would be needed in order to really solve their pain point. Um, and so from 2013 to 2015, that's what we were doing. We were just talking ideas, trying to understand the problem that we were solving, um, which is the triage of chest pain in the emergency room and in the, uh, in the clinic setting. Um, in 2016, we raised our seed round. Uh, it was a million and a half that we ended up raising uh, with Mark Cuban and Cincy Tech, um, which is its own story. Uh, but uh, so in 2016, we raised the seed round. Um, okay. That capital went towards proving that the early data that we had generated, the voice of customer that we had collected from 2013 to 2015, that we could actually turn it into a, a, a minimum viable product. Um, and so shortly thereafter, after raising that seed round, we pushed the first version of our technology, CardioFlux, into a clinic in Detroit, Michigan. It's actually one of the busiest ERs in the state, Ascension St. John, uh, with Dr. Robert Takla, who's now our full-time chief medical officer. So everything comes full circle. Um, but uh, 2016, we raised the seed round. We build this product. Um, 2017, we raise our Series A. That ends up being a $7.5 million Series A. That gets us through our first FDA clearance. So it's a 510k cleared product. Um, we establish, you know, compliance with the medical device single audit program, MDSAP. So our quality management system is certified. And um, we start investing in clinical trials to prove that the technology is is doing exactly what we set out to do. And, uh, you know, now, now fast forward, um, in totality, we've raised uh, about $40 million in venture, uh, the latest of which was a uh, 17 and a half million series C led by Mithril capital out in uh, Austin, Texas. Uh, and it's, it's been exciting. You know, we've come a long way. We've completed numerous clinical trials. Uh, we've established reimbursement for cardioflux, both in the hospital and in the outpatient setting. Um, and we've installed the technology at leading institutions, you know, Cleveland clinic, wake forest, Ascension, Beaumont. Um, and we're just very motivated by, uh, the feedback that we've gotten from the field, uh, the clinical data that we've collected. Um, I think it's showing that the day for, for magnetocardiography and for cardioflux has, has truly arrived. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> a couple things we need to circle back to, uh, why Buffalo? Um, <clears throat> I know there's the, uh, uh, Gates 
vascular institute up there um and i thought there was one more and i can't think of the name of it um is that kind of the reason or <clears throat> why buffalo yeah so actually in 2014 uh the city launched a new campaign um in partnership with the state of new york called 43 north and it was a oh yeah if, yeah if you're familiar with 43 north very cool yeah. program we actually applied the first year that they did it um Okay. And so we moved to Buffalo to be part of that ecosystem and community and, and you know, work on the technology and business uh, out of Buffalo. So a funny story is actually uh, eight of us living out of a two-bedroom apartment for for quite some time. Um, my family had moved out with me, uh, and, and it was the rest of us just working day in, day out at a, at a Buffalo, New York. It was a exciting but very grimy time for us. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Um, okay, so that's that's super cool. So I've heard of 43 North. Um, there's the Gates Vascular Institute. And then there's one more group that I cannot think of for the life of me right now. And maybe it was rebranded with, it kind of got merged with Gates, but there was one more up there. Um, Buffalo actually has a pretty cool ecosystem. Um, if people haven't been there before, um, you know, it probably gets a little lost in the shuffle because it's not Philly, it's not New York City, it's not Boston, but but it does have a pretty cool ecosystem. Um, so that's pretty cool. The other thing I wanted to circle back to was the Mark Cuban and Cincy Tech. So two part question there is one Mark Cuban. Um, and then the second one is tell me about like the local support you got from uh, Cincy Tech. Uh, so, so for those who, who are listening in, because this is, we have people who listen in a hundred different countries. Um, uh, Cincinnati, Ohio is in the southern piece of Ohio. Mason, uh, where Puch is from, is is really close to Cincinnati. I mean, almost a suburb of Cincinnati. So tell me about Mark Cuban and then tell me about Cincy Tech. Yeah, Mark Cuban was a cold email. Um, you know, his his email is fairly <laughs> fairly public and he's not shy about that. Um, so, yeah. you know, uh, I, I shot my shot. Uh, you know, I, I knew that we were working on something exciting and yeah, I knew the downside risk was, was nil. I mean, we had no money and, you know, yeah. we had an idea. Um, so I shot him a note and originally Mark took the stance of, you know, it's an exciting concept, but prove to me that people actually want this, that people actually are, are going to use the technology and benefit from it. So for the first nine or so months that I was in, in contact with Mark over email, um, he was uh, in wait and see mode. Um, and during that span of time, we were able to collect meaningful data. We had prototyped software and validated in a very small pilot with the Mayo Clinic. And so uh, that was really what it took to convince Mark that with very little, our team was was uh, scrappy and could get the job done. And so I think that's what convinced him ultimately. But uh, we, we cold emailed Mark. We built a relationship over time. And uh, that's that's what ultimately uh, got the deal done. Super cool. Um, and now Cincy Tech. Cincy Tech is, has been a part of our story even, even before they funded the company, as is with most, most cases, right? Uh, they're fantastic because I think their, their vision and their, their program is entirely focused on cultivating great returns as it is with any, you know, venture focused organization. But at the same time, it's, looking at the community as something that they have a, a, a role to play in. You know, if it's a young first-time founder, such as myself, or my co-founders, um, it's providing the meaningful feedback to, you know, walk before you run, uh, you know, here are the big questions that you need to be prepared to, 
ask yourself and answer. Um, and, and they just took the time to actually help us build our business before it was a real business. Um, and then lo and behold, when they joined the seed round with Mark Cuban, every round subsequent, they've participated, they've doubled down, they've continued to support the business at every level, they've made the right introductions. Um, I can't, I can't rate Cincy Tech any higher as a, as a partner. That's awesome. Um, so, so funny story. Um, uh, I was at, uh, the CEO retreat, uh, for Ohio X, uh, in September and I was hosting a panel with, um, jump startup in Cleveland, rev one and down in Columbus and Cincy tech down in, um, Cincinnati. And the, the guy who was on from Cincy tech, we were talking and, you know, I said, yeah, you know, we host a podcast. He wasn't really familiar with what we did. Um, and I said, yeah, you know, I'm always looking for Ohio companies to promote. And he goes, have you heard the one about these kids who were middle school friends? And I said, <laughs> I started laughing because we had already talked at that time. So for the people who are listening in right now, we, we've been talking about doing a podcast episode since like, yeah, or something. <laughs> um, it's just been, we had events, they were busy all in good reasons. So, so now we're finally sitting down in December to do it. And I said, they're already on the list. We're already going to do an episode. So it was just funny because they brought you up right away. And so I thought that was pretty cool. That's so funny. We, we also um, always get the question of how have you stayed friends uh, for so long? And, <laughs> and I tell them uh, no comment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's amazing. Um, so the 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 seventeen and a half million you raised in a Series C, I, I I know you said the group was out of Austin that led that. Um, can you can you just talk through? I mean, we have a whole separate series on medtech money, but but just real quick, I just want to. It, it's always fascinating when you talk about the evolution of how you raise capital. So I, I'd love to hear from your experience. You know, it did did it did it feel did it start out when we talk to entrepreneurs, I'll just preface it this way. We always say, look, your seed round, your series A, any bridges, it's scrappy. Um, but then as you get further down, it starts to get really strategic on, on who you're asking for. Is that kind of your experience? Can you walk me through that a little bit? hundred percent. And I mean, I think the qualities that are investable in early stage venture, you know, seed series A, um, are, are different, I think, naturally than what is is sought after in later stage. You know, in the early stage, it's really about: Do you have the grit? Do you have the vision? Do you have the the capabilities of recruiting a world class team? Um, do you have an infectious attitude towards solving this problem? Um, and as we've gotten in later stages, it's been: Okay, do you have the the plan can you prove that the plan is working so far what what evidence do you have to support your your claims uh and then ultimately do you see larger infusions of capital as serving a purpose are you catalyzing towards something specific on your plan um and it's really about risk mitigation every step of the way but the risk is just fundamentally different for early stage versus kind of mid to to growth stage investing obviously I'm on mute. Um, now that's, that's, that's cool. Um, so I, I do want to hop back to, uh, the, the, not the middle school days, but the finding of the company. Right. And so, um, we have that, 
within Project MedTech, right? So, so I started the company and founded it as a podcast, but we took that and I added two more co-founders and that's where it really evolved from, right? And um, it, it's just, it's, it's interesting sometimes because um, <clears throat> in, in like the public's eye, um, the CEO gets a lot of attention. Um, uh, they're, they're generally the face of the company, but in, in like in Project MedTech's case, you know, Rich, uh, who's our CFO and co-founder, and Aaron, who's our COO and co-founder, um, does a ton. I mean, it's all of our ideas equally, right? We're very much equal partners in all of this. And so those conversations, though, at an early phase can get a little um, awkward, essentially, right? Because you're trying to figure out who's going to take what role. And um, while you might be equal, one person might get you know, praised a little bit more for something or get more a little of the, the, the public attention, um, where like the general public thinks the CEO runs the company and it's just this person out doing their thing. When we all know it's very collective, there's voting, it's, it's, it's all the lead, it's all the executives and leaders of the company, the board members, that kind of thing. So for, for you guys, it's even more interesting because you guys were all, you all were friends before. So Tell me about those conversations of how that went and, and how you got people in the proper positions based on your skill sets to succeed and, and, and what those conversations look like. Yeah, no, I think it's such a great question, Dwayne, because I think uh, at the time we didn't know this answer at all, right? It, it was very much, you know, by the seat of your pants kind of approach. Uh, it was, <laughs> mm-hmm. we got a job to do, someone's got to do it. If you're not doing it, then someone else is doing it, right? So and mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's self-organizing to some extent. But now looking back and even where we are at now, part of the advantage of being friends is you know the soft skill capabilities. You know, So I know, for example, Vineet as my COO is an excellent manager of risk. He knows how to project plan very well. He can identify 15 steps ahead what all of the potential pitfalls are and begin proactively risk mitigating. And I know where that skill set is going to be very conducive to our success. I know where that skill set may may not be the exact right fit. So it becomes a little bit less about technical skill and it becomes a lot more about where do I know your mindset and personality and leadership capabilities are best suited for where I need you for the next six months or where we need each other for the next six months, right? uh, in a similar note, you know, I think Manny, for example, is a, is a tech wizard, uh, incredibly intelligent, um, very autonomous, and is one of the most visionary people I've worked with. And so giving him the space to be able to try test, giving him the resources to be able to manage, um, you know, numerous projects at once so that he can actually execute on that vision is super conducive to his skill set. But I think my short answer to your question, Dwayne, is... Uh, it's mostly soft skill driven. It's understanding where our unique skill sets are best suited to drive the the most disproportionate value, independent of what technical skills we may or may not have. I mean, we can recruit for those. And that's part of what we did in the early days is we knew we weren't qualified to do med tech commercialization or med tech regulatory. And so we brought those skill sets in house. Um, The rest is, is soft skills. And I think that's a huge part of of the leadership of an organization like this yeah yeah no i i I totally agree i think a lot of it is 
Well, realizing your gaps um, and and just being okay with like knowing that like yeah you gotta let you gotta let control go a little bit you gotta trust each other um, and once you once you get to a really good spot with that it makes things super easy to to scale and grow and it builds a really good environment for innovation and and commercial growth so um, no I think that's I think that's uh, super cool. Um, so along this whole ride so far, um, what what are some of these things that you learn the hard way that if you, I mean, not, not, not if, when you exit your current company in whatever manner it might be, whether it's you guys go public and eventually you want to get back into innovating again, or you actually sell it off, whatever it is, right? When you're on your next project, what are some of those things that, you learned the first time around that you said, yeah, we're not doing that again. <laughs> I think, and again, I've learned this the hard way. That's the right way to preface this question. Um, you know, having started this company so early and been a huge fan of being nimble, being extremely agile, aggressive about, you know, building new things. Um, there's something to be said about being operationally very uh, efficient, having good protocols and procedures in place, right? It's how can you put this business in a place where it's almost self-sufficient, you know, autonomous, where you know that the business can run functionally uh, with very, very little quote unquote divine interruption or, or, you know, unpredictable types. And that stuff will always happen. I mean, we had a little thing called COVID just a few years ago, right? And no one can anticipate it, but you can create opportunity after opportunity for, for your business's walls to be strengthened, for that fortitude to exist, um, to weather any storm. And I think because I've always favored kind of a lean, agile, you know, scrappy attitude, sometimes process goes by the wayside and that can come back to really bite you as you're scaling the business. Um, and so... I've learned that the hard way, and, and I think the easiest solution is to is to bring people with skill sets that are complementary to that, to yours, to mine, for example. Um, a case in point, John Emanuel is my CFO, and he's he's an expert at thinking about problems this way. Um, so I think having invested in in these things later than I should have, maybe uh, I'm realizing how important they are. In really creating yeah. a robust business, that's a great feedback. We, uh, I sometimes I need to hear that myself because so so the dynamic between me, Rich, and Aaron is um, I generally have big ideas and want to go fast and uh, want to go to the next step. And hey, here's where we need to be. And and you know this is we have three more steps, but here's our fourth one already. Right. And, uh, Aaron and rich slow me down. And I, you know, they, they say, well, hold on a second, Dwayne, we got to do this, this, and this, and this to get there. And we should really build a really strong foundation before we start building this over here. And I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. 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 Sounds good. Right. You know, and, um, it, it does, it causes healthy friction, uh, where <clears throat> it's the right thing to do. But, um, when I was starting the company, um, my wife would tell you the exact same thing uh, that, you know, like when we bought our house, it's like, uh, I'm already, we, we haven't even 
painted the dining room and I'm like, we should do this and this and this to the outside or something like this. Right. And so when I, when I first started the company and looking for my Aaron and my rich, it was very much, I need someone to like slow me down and make sure we're doing things right. And they are phenomenal at that. But to your point there, it's like, it, it, it does, uh, you could learn the hard way and it could be really frustrating. So I tried to prevent that. <laughs> These are definitely going to be listening to this and laughing so hard because it's exactly the same situation. for us. <laughs> yeah. So, um, cool. And, and so what about, um, uh, so you guys have obviously done a lot, right. Um, and you've kind of hit on some tidbits throughout the way. And this is how this question always goes. It's like, you've kind of answered that for the last 25 minutes of, of why you've been successful. Um, but, but if you, if you were reflecting on it again and you had to say, Hey, here's one or two things that, you know, we kept this at the core of our culture at the very beginning. And this is why we've had some success. You know, what would that be? Uh, yeah, I think embracing humility is essential, right? Uh, the fact that we're young, we haven't done this before, we're outsiders uh, for the most part to this problem, uh, meant that we were very humble. We had to be very humble by design. And so surrounding ourselves with the right people, whether they be advisors, whether they be uh, people you would want to be end users, uh, whether they be actual team members, it's just recognizing that it takes a village but more, more importantly it, it needs it needs people that are way smarter than myself um and then my co-founders mm -hmm. and and i know they wouldn't mind me saying that uh yeah and so i think that's number one um number two i think for me at least uh is to is to always maintain uh a, a problem-centric approach i think it's very easy to get stuck with the i've got an exciting technology i'm gonna go you know, I'm the hammer looking for the nail, um, as opposed to really embracing the fact that you started the business. I started the business to solve a fundamental problem, and I want to be adaptive and thoughtful about how to best solve that problem for our end users, because that's that's what makes the business viable. That's what makes the business exciting, um, and that's what should be motivating me and every member of my team to come into work every day and work hard. Not the fact that we've got a cool new widget that we think is is going to sell itself because yeah, most likely it won't. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. I, you know, that's some of that feedback is when we work with our startup companies, um, I'd say more, more the early stage ones, um, you know, like your pre-seed, seed stage companies, un un helping them understand that, uh, the problem you're solving is pretty much everything in your team and that people are probably not really investing in your technology at all. Uh, they're investing in the problem you're solving and how good your team is, um, is, is difficult to like swallow. Um, but you know, they, they have to, to, to understand that. So we spend a lot of time talking about that, but then I think even going further, like you said, keeping that as a baseline culture, is, is really important because once you get to commercialization phase, you could start to see some companies lose focus because they get in this, um, this, 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 well, we, we spent our pre-seed seed series a building this, you know, product, there has to be a fit now. And it's like, yeah, 
but that's why you iterate and that's why things change. And so, you know, you need to constantly reflect that. So I, 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 I love that feedback there. I think that's a really good one. We haven't heard that yet. Yeah. Um, okay. So I'm curious, uh, what's, what's, what's next? What's on the outlook for, uh, geneticists? Uh, what is, what is the, what's the next year look like? We're, we're finishing up 2022 here by the time this gets released, it could be the first episode of 2023. So what's 2023 looking like? Yeah, no, it's, that's exciting because we're going to be starting 2023 with a bang. Um, we just completed our 400 patient ACMED trial, a multi-center trial in partnership with, uh, Cleveland Clinic, Ascension, St. John, Beaumont Royal Oak and Wake Forest. Uh, so we should have that trials readout uh, in early 23. So that should be really exciting. Uh, it's been cool. It's been a great journey in partnership with some great uh, people at those institutions, and those institutions are fantastic as well. Um, but more to come in 2023. We have other clinical trials that we've been uh, enrolling in. One for microvascular disease, which is a, a very novel, exciting new application that we are. Uh, aggressively going after with cardioflux um but uh in addition to the clinicals we'll be launching commercially this year and so the installed base for cardioflux is uh is expected to to double um in 2023 and we're we're really excited about that um, we already have our first uh set of of new installs happening in the southeast uh the united states this year um later this year um which is hard to Hard to believe since we're we're talking December second right now. Um, so later this year is just like two or three weeks now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's uh it's really exciting. We're we're really focused on at this point delivering CardioFlux and dedicating our time and energy to making our our users as successful as they can possibly be. Whether it's in clinical study, whether it's as an early adopter, um, or both. Uh, and that's that's really what you can expect in twenty twenty three. Cool. So, so let's touch on one more thing here about the, the clinical piece. So this was a 510k submission. Um, I doubt there was any clinical needed for submission, or if it was, it was super small. Is that correct? For the 510k, yes. But the, the punchline here mm -hmm. is in 2022, earlier this year, we submitted a de novo application to expand Understood. indications for use for the product. So that obviously required substantial clinical data. Um, and that's Correct. Okay. That's pending. Okay. Now, but uh, again, uh, a 2023 anticipated win for us as well. Mm -hmm. So, so tell me about. Um, sometimes it gets confused with 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 start with with companies, med tech companies in general, where they don't need clinical for their regulatory approvals. So like, yeah, we just don't need clinical data. Um, I mean, it's actually it's a problem throughout the medical device industry as a whole, anyways. Um, but I'm curious on. Okay, so you do the 510K, you're doing a stepwise approach, you go for the for the de novo, you got to get some clinical data. Um, what other inputs went into, hey, we need to do some clinical data. It's not just to satisfy the FDA to get our de novo, but there has to be other endpoints you're trying to collect for commercial success, marketing claims, reimbursement. So can you kind of walk through some of that strategy as well? Yeah, I'd say the two big pillars are uh, adoption um, and market access, right? Um, <laughs> Yep. Again, all of these things are linked, right? So um, there's unique considerations in each, but I'll start with market access. You know, building appropriate clinical evidence to justify that the procedure is both medically reasonable and necessary, right? Just the central statutes of Medicare. Um, but 
also demonstrating that at the end of the day, you're improving outcomes and driving down costs, improving efficiencies. Um, and that is the story of CardioFlux, right? When we think about chest pain, we're trying to validate that we're better than the standard of care at identifying functionally significant ischemic heart disease, whether you're in the ER or you're an outpatient, but at the same time, proving that you can do that much faster with much higher patient satisfaction, uh, zero cumulative radiation exposure, uh, and at a and, you know, substantially lower cost per case. Um, so all of the, the values that need to be associated with our product in order for the payers to recognize the need to cover a procedure like this. So, so that's one element. The second is ultimately we work in healthcare. Uh, our end user is responsive most to clinical data, uh, recognizing the fact that it's, you know, the de novo bar or the 510k bar is one thing, but the bar for adoption comes down to ultimately I'm practicing medicine and I'm making a clinical decision to send a patient home because of your test or to send a patient to the cath lab because of your test. So we take that uh, with, with the highest sense of responsibility. And so investing early in very definitive, robust clinical data, well beyond what you would need for safety and efficacy, but really to prove that, you know, clinicians can make decisions on the basis of your output of your test. Um, that's, that's really the primary driver to invest uh, aggressively in, in clinical data. Yeah, I love it. Um, the clinical adoption piece, um, slash market access. I mean, um, what a massive, lift that is that that companies drastically underestimate there's always this well we have a problem we have a solution we're gonna get through the regulatory and then we're gonna convert we just want to commercialize as fast as possible and it's like i promise you that's not what you want because commercialization is hard and getting into hospitals takes 12 18 24 months sometimes to get them to seriously be a customer um and so understanding how long these take um and the time and the fact that um, arguably you are selling to the most conservative industry in the world. Um, like it's just, I'm, I'm sure there's others, someone's gonna like write and be like, yeah, Dwayne, you're wrong. There's like three other ones. But in general, healthcare is very conservative um, uh, as well it should be. We're talking about human life. So, um, you know, it, it, it makes total sense. But um, no, I really appreciate that feedback on the clinical perspective. Um, Hey, in, in closing, is there anything else we missed that you were, you were, you really wanted to cover on the podcast? Nothing from my end, Dwayne. This has been a absolute right. pleasure. I appreciate you, uh, you inviting, uh, me to talk a little bit about our story. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for being on. Uh, I will include, um, a link to the website, your LinkedIn. Um, and then, uh, and that way, if anyone wants to get a hold of you, if you're, you're pretty active on LinkedIn. Yes, absolutely. No. Oh, great. Okay. Awesome. All right. Piyush, thank you so much for being on. Uh, hang on for one minute. I'm gonna stop the recording. We'll chat offline. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at projectmedtech.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.